In honor of the villainous interlude, Podcast Guys is going to be rife with spoilers because that's evil, and evil is good for us. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Do we need to be worried about Chider? Is Ubwa the last great villain in Colernia? And how will the bard get out of this one? Find out next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Oh, wait, wait. I, I just read the chapter. We actually find out oh, that... Yeah, no, I, I see that now. It's actually... Right, right. Do, do you want to just... Find out this week on PGTEE. Never hold anything in a cage you can't put back in should it get out. Dread Emperor Terribilis II. An odd epigraph to have at the beginning of this chapter, but anyway, this is a chapter where there's a demon in a cage and Aquia gets it out. Also, the bard shows up and chats a little bit. Not unlike a lot of other chapters, this is one of those where almost nothing happens in terms of events. And it's momentous and glorious. And really, the reason we all came here this week, because that's the chapter this week. Next week, it will be a different one. And it will also be good. Wait, we have to do a different chapter every week? No, this week and next week. Please. Oh, goodness. I was like, there's so many chapters. Are you sure? They're at least 50. You thought give me a heart attack. Woof. And I mean that literally. I'm ancient at this point. Speaking of ancient, do you know what Aquia did when she was 13 and felt so grown up? What did Aquia do when she was 13 and felt so grown up? She poured over all the writings authored by Dread Empress Militia and her calamities. And I understand there are reasons to write things down. Don't get me wrong. And I'm interested in investigating that, in fact, now. But the question I want to pose to frame that is, why did the Dread Empress and her Calamities write so much? There could well be good reason to leave things unwritten. Hey, I've got a Legion strategy. I'll keep it secret so that people don't read it and steal it or master countering it. Hey, I've got a way that I want to rule, and I'm going to keep it secret because it lets me manipulate my people better, etc., etc. So why do they write things down? Ready? I'm ready. Okay, first we'll do Assassin. Assassin didn't write anything down. Probably. I suppose there's a I chance mean, that Scribe had some fun and had Assassin write some, some of her stuff for her, like if she had a hand cramp. That would be... I suspect she's immune to hand cramps now, but... Actually, yeah. I would wager that Scribe cannot get hand cramps from writing. But maybe Assassin wrote something in blood, you know? Slit the throat, yeah. scrawl a, you know, behind you, then go lurk behind them until they see the thing, and then say boo. 
Captain also didn't write anything down, but that makes sense because she is simply too big to hold a pen. Naturally. Scribe, though not a calamity, <laughs> don't worry about it, uh, <laughs> did write down one thing, a piece on organizational principles, which wasn't published but circulated privately among high-ranking Legion officers. A queer deems it useful but not groundbreaking, and that seems fair. I think Scribe would want systems to run well while keeping the treatise on efficiency to the Empire Circles. And I'm sure that being scribed, she could keep it from going further. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not groundbreaking, it's useful to have a yeah guide. A practical guide, perhaps. A practical guide to scribery. Right. However, Aquia, soon to be one of the single most important forces on the face of the continent, sees this and it confirms her belief that the scribe was a very talented administrator, but not a threat independently of her master. And while everything Scribe does is, of course, informed and governed by that relationship to Black, she acts independently, and she's the most threatening in certain ways. The Warlock's the most threatening in very many ways. Black's also the most threatening in certain ways. Also, Captain's a werewolf, so write that one down. Wait, you can't. You're too big. Checkmate. <laughs> yeah, this is this is one of those moments where uh, hmm, this chapter... <laughs> brings to light a few things for me on a reread that I will probably discuss at the end of this chapter once we can get through all of them so I can kind of talk about them together uh, that is encouraging me to reevaluate my conception of Ubla, uh from my at least first... at the age of 13 and what? Mm. whatever she is now 20? Yeah. yeah and uh, but I will we'll get there I just this is the first piece of evidence in this chapter and uh, it's it's more of maybe it's not a full reevaluation, but rather just a nudge to pay closer attention to her going forward. I'll be curious to see more about this going forward. So then we're left with the great general, the great governor, and the academic. Who do you think wrote a lot of them? Oh, the academic, you're right. Warlock, we read, had been the most prolific author, and it's all related to anomalous sorceries or magical theory. Okay, sure. Makes a lot of sense to me. That's what you do. Like, sure. When you're, I find it rare the researcher who doesn't want to share things, even if not all researchers are particularly thrilled about the documentation of their thinking necessarily, because it can be a pain. But, and submissions to nature is, or this is praise, the submissions to aberration, it's just such a long <laughs> sure. process. Yeah. But, Aquia looks at this, sees all of the experiments he'd been doing, and she realizes, aha, the man, quote, had access to more wealth than was openly known, which was, ellipsis, interesting. And I have to forgive her because she's 13, but the kind of realization that the rich and powerful and also super weapon on his own accord, Warlock, might have wealth we don't know about, when also, given the way Prace works, he just kind of has whoever, whomever's, he has the wealth of whomever he chooses to have the wealth of, because come on, as long as he doesn't attack the high seats directly, he can do what he wants. He's warlock. Aquia's silly. Yeah, and not only is she a little silly in that, but she goes on to say here, it meant there was a material power base to attack, if she ever needed to distract him. And I have to say, it's a little odd that she doesn't assume that warlock just has a patron, 
in the form of, say, Militia or his presumably immortal husband. I don't know. A material power base, as she's implying here, makes it sound like it's a logistical chain that she can interfere with rather than one incredibly powerful rich person funneling money into either a loved one or a loved one who's also an incredibly potent weapon for her empire. Like I would assume I would assume her money comes or his money comes from militia, most likely. Why it would it behooves her to finance the experiments of the warlock. All Aquia needs to do to get the warlock out of the way is to overthrow the Empire, and then the Warlock will not be as well positioned to prevent her from overthrowing the Empire. Checkmate. Wow, that's actually a really good point, and I'm glad that she thought of this. Speaking of people who think of things, or think of everything, perhaps. <laughs> All right. Lord Black. Mm-hmm. He had penned a handful of treatises on tactics, and they were just really reports about what techniques had worked and not worked during the conquest. Okay, fair. Reports happen in the military. That doesn't even feel like a terribly... That's not even necessarily, I'm going to publish this. No, you have reports. There was a paper on the influence of the original Meats and Legions on the Precy ones, and why some of the leftover practices needed to be abandoned. It had, however, been written before the conquest. Now, that's a cool one, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily because of how much use it has in the world now, but rather, look how long Black's been operating along some really difficult lines of thought. Because presuppositions are the kind of things that you just end up presupposing, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's it's stepping into a well-established tradition and more or less on his own saying, no, we got to change all these things and here's why. It's a difficult thing to do practically, let alone arriving at that point in the first place. And, you know, Black's the kind of guy to do it. So it makes sense, but, uh, you know... Good for him, even if it does mean a change in the amount of defenestrations going on at the War College. I mean, you want to keep defenestrations exciting. So, Catherine Foundling is the blade that cuts the neck of the Age of Wonders. Okay. I think I don't go too far in saying this, though arguments can be made, but it, it, it's Catherine, right? Yeah. However, is she simply a tool fashioned and launched by Black? Who is responsible for the death of the Age of Wonders. I don't think I would say that. I think rather than... I think that it's more that Catherine forged herself using... By refining the blueprint that was black. They have similar, though not identical, goals in regards to the Age of the World. Like, they, you know, they both have a sort of reality-shifting kind of focus, especially towards the end of their lives. But I think... Catherine builds on the success of Black and creates for herself a technique based on him rather than simply I don't I don't think Black could be said to have intentionally launched Catherine towards this goal nudged her sure but she's her own person and is very I don't know very aware of that very intentional about that I think saying that she's a weapon launched by Black takes away too much of her agency for the kind of thing that she is doing, despite the fact that she does sacrifice agency in a major way for a pretty good chunk of the work here. Uh, I do think that saying that that agency was laid at the feet of Black is maybe taking their relationship a bit too far. I don't disagree. Though, when you're talking about agency, then we get into really interesting things with what names due to agency. Right. Because arguably, starting in the 
third chapter of the work, Catherine's agency is harshly curtailed. But who took the steps to curtail that agency? But the similarly agency curtailed Black Knight. So really what we need to get into is free will. Oh, good. And I think it was a mistake. Okay, that's less good, but I'm willing to hear you out. Well, how good is it? How good do you consider the hierarchy to be? Are we talking capital G good or lowercase? Is there a difference? <laughs> oh boy, we are really just digging right to the heart of this entire work, aren't we? Here in uh, <laughs> in this villainous interlude in the second book. Well, speaking of digging in, in the villainous interlude, Aquia actually got her hands on a pretty difficult to get text specifically an after action report from black's fortnight in stygia it isn't the censored one he gave the chancellor's office but rather one that he smuggled directly to militia who at that point was a concubine the text actually calls her a mere concubine but let's be real alaya was never merely anything no yeah absolutely not it's in order to get that text uh uwo reveals that it cost her a small fortune, sure, and the lives of seven family agents in the tower. Is it just me, or does it seem like losing seven agents associated with the Sahelians would create a trail? Like, how did that not give the game away? How did the uh, the tyrant of the tower not realize what was going on and pursue that? Like, it seems that if it was that hard to get, it was worth keeping secret. To be fair. It's unclear how it's unclear what kind of time period this was. Did seven people die in a week, or did seven people die in a few years? I realize she's only thirteen, but that means she's had what eight, nine good independent scheming years by Wolof tradition. And well, okay, go ahead. We mustn't forget the shell game of identity and double and triple agents going on. How many of these seven appear linked to the Sahelians? How many of the seven even? count as linked to the Sahelians alone? Were they under other identities? Were the family agents agents by proxy? There's a, you know, there's crazy stuff going on. And were they even found out or were they just written off with some other deaths of the week? Because, you know, it's a tower. You take a left when you should have taken a right and all of a sudden your soul's being messed up big time. I should write a novel. You should. Uh, the words were very powerful. Yeah, I, I suppose that's fair. There's That's the word I'm looking for. Your souls game messed up mad powerful. Nice. There's a lot going on here. It it's I think the time frame is probably more condensed than you're implying. If she read everything within one summer, I don't think that years in advance she was planning to read everything in that specific summer and start, you know, I imagine it was a little more condensed and the bodies were appearing more rapidly. That said, yeah, who knows? It's the tower. It, it just seems like that was maybe a lapse on the part of the tyrant and the various agents tasked with keeping that kind of thing secret. But we don't really get a lot of detail, so it's really hard to, uh, I don't know, tease apart what actually happened there. But that's our job. Oh, I don't, I don't think I want that job. Can we just talk about how much we love, I don't know, Captain or whatever for a while instead? I was actually going to talk about loving the entirety of the Calamities, but sure, I'll frame this that way. Uh, so Aquia tells us that the assertion that he'd done the entire thing drunk, which I'm sure comes entirely from Captain, 
she could safely dismiss as a jest to amuse militia and presumably captain for his predictions of enemy moves have been too consistently accurate. And I think Akuya is really small minded here because, oh, Black did well. Therefore, he wasn't drunk. A, you don't know his life. B, he's named so he can stop being drunk and then get right back to it anytime he wants. And three, I prefer the story that he's drunk. So it's true. And D, I... I think maybe this isn't D. Maybe this is just addendum A. I it's odd to me that she thinks that Black she just has a low opinion of Black, I think it is all it is. Like she understands what he has done in practical terms, but I don't think she fully appreciates what he's capable of, past tense and present tense, and future tense, I suppose. In that even while drunk, he so far outclasses the magisters of Astigia that he's able to manage this, you know, that he's able to predict people so easily. It comes so naturally to him that he doesn't need to be focused on it to tear down a city. I think that's the point. Even, you know, was he drunk or, you know, slightly tipsy or did he have some drinks as part of this? Hard to say. But I, it's just another case of Ubwa drastically underselling the capabilities of a calamity. I, it's, yeah, again, we'll talk more on that later. Just another another piece to the puzzle. Interestingly, Aquia suggests that Lord Black is as dangerous when improvising as when operating according to a set plan. And she says that foundling works the same way. The two of them knew they were more skilled at exploiting chaos than their opponents, so they created chaos. And I see the way they act a little differently. Black introduces chaos as an element in his plans in order to continue advancing his aims. Chaos as part of a grander order. And Catherine kind of sees things burning around her and throws goblin fire on it to see if that'll help things out. And it does, because she's terrible. And I mean that complimentarily, of course. Yeah, I, I think that Uba's analysis here is pretty accurate for Kat, actually. The keep adding chaos because she can handle it better. I think that that does play in. However, it also l- overlooks both Black and Kat's ability to formulate and enact pretty in, you know, ingenious plans. Okay, yeah, but at their height, it's pretty easy to look over them. Okay, very true. Black, though, I don't know. The times where we see chaos in regards to black are it's less him instigating chaos or using it as a tool and more him recognizing that when you are dealing with an enemy there will be chaos and planning around it planning for the chaos like it i don't think he is saying i want there to be chaos as part of my plan but rather saying i know there will be so let's set up a plan that will function despite or perhaps better because of that chaos does that does that make sense entirely granted i'm just i'm thinking things like the uh uh the siege where they take on the white knight and all of that there's a lot going on there and i don't know that black had planned for all of those things to happen but he was prepared for them to happen and aside you know ignoring a certain death the woe sorry the woe the calamities generally were better able to capitalize on what was going on than the heroes What death could you be talking about? So, moving on. Militia wrote some stuff, too. Apparently, back when she was a member of the Seraglio, and I do have to note again, that is how it's pronounced. I learned this when I did a podcast on it. 
Me She'd too. written a history of the War of 13 Tyrants and One, which showed both, you know, she politics good, but also that she had access to the private Imperial Library, which is very special because she was not noble. But, you know, we know her. No shock that she can get access. Right. But then she wrote something that Aquia finds to be an abomination. It's called The Death of the Age of Wonders. Great title. 10 out of 10. Don't care what's in it. Already love it. And Militia lays out foreign policy for the Dread Empire. Some of it's nothing special, but it includes things like reaching out to the Thalassocracy. Apparently, at least one of the justifications is that there was a need for, quote, a counterweight south of Prosser. But Aquia finds this to be immaterial. She writes that Asher stood on the side of good. No amount of shared interests would ever fill that gap. And this immediately sets Aquia up as an anti-cat. Catherine sees goals, and to her, the game of the gods is kind of, if relevant, tertiarily relevant to her actual end. I need to free Callow, the good kingdom. Well, I can't do that. I need to protect Callow. Maybe I can do that. How? I've got to be evil. Well, that's worth it. It helps Callow. For an ostensibly good end, protecting, freeing, helping thrive a good kingdom, she's willing to use evil. As we go through the book, oh look, the truce, the terms, the accords, cardinal. She doesn't care what side people are on so much as what they're doing. But Aquia? Nope. These are good guys. We can't work with them. The end. Yeah, and I, I do wonder, is she is she saying here we shouldn't work with good as her stance, or is she saying there won't be any kind of actual alliance between Asher and Prace because they are intrinsically at odds and it's not her saying we shouldn't but rather we can't because it's odd to me that and i know it's not purely morals i understand that it's just an ingrained alignment of sides here in the actual world but it's odd to me that ubwa of all people is saying no those are the good people and we can't work with them because we're evil and that's you know taking almost a moral stance on this seems odd for her so it seems is it is it am i wrong in thinking it's more a recognition of a what she perceives as a fact rather than a stance on the matter i think so in great part but it's still a very short-sighted one because Mm -hmm. even let's look at the free cities i know they're not necessarily a model of functioning end of sentence but (laughs) there is certainly they are a loosely organized occasionally confederated series of good and evil cities that have a whole lot more going on than just well you know they're the bad ones we're the good ones Bellerophon and Heliki could never be actual friends and they're ostensibly on the same side yeah, it. They're both the worst. They, they're so bad. They're very bad. And I think, I think with the free cities, though, yeah, you say that they are confederated at times, but it's important to remember it takes some pretty exceptional events and people to force that. And even then, the confederation is a loose alignment of international interests, and there needs to be some heavy emphasis on the word loose. There, they are tied together by you know a pretty 
incredible person, and that can only go so far. We it's it doesn't seem that way because when the free cities are on screen for us, it is as a confederation, it is as an alliance. But Sometimes that's sort of right, right. It, it, when they're on when they're on screen, they are as aligned as they can be, and even that isn't perfect. But that's because when they're on screen, it's because they are directly serving as the demographic backdrop for the power of Kairos or the Hierarch, or, you know, even as the people, as the other faction fighting against the Dead King. Like, there's there's always an exceptional thing tying them together in this story, and we are looking at, by nature of this being the focus of a story, exceptional times, you know? So it, it doesn't, it, it is going to stand out as feeling that way when they probably aren't as tied together for most of their history. Not unfair. But you know what is unfair, I think? What's that? That Eris thinks that Militia's avoidance of direct conflict had led the Empire directly to its current weakened position. Weakened? Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the Empire conquer all of Callow like 20 years ago? You know, their historic, traditional enemy? And they beat them? Like, they won? Uh, Okay, but what about the fact that they haven't conquered everything? Think about that. Also, don't we hear from multiple people, haven't we heard from multiple people at this point that uh, Amadeus is one of the more effective Black Knights in a very long time, and Militia seems to be one of the more effective Dread Empresses? Seems to be. You know, who can say? I mean, (laughs) we don't get a lot of detail on most of them, and effectiveness is such a wibbly word. Like, I would argue that there have been some very effective Dread emperors who just had different goals than militia like traitorous probably pretty effective just not in the same way as militia (laughs) regardless i think this is uh more evidence of eris's hyper focused view on what's important and how the world works like she's missing a lot of things if she thinks that the empire is weakened when it is probably at its strongest since i don't know perhaps triumphant it's hard to say okay well may she never return but consider this okay how about they conquer callow great time for the timeline split what if the legions marched across the veils instead of resting on their laurels and burned salia to the ground permanently sundering the principalities would that not be a better position the premise there might need some poking at but i suppose the results would be better yeah there you go. Simply this... defeat the strongest, this other strongest political force on all of Kalernia. Just, just beat them. Check and mate. Uh, though, remember that he called Militia one of the most effective? Yes. Well, based on Aquia's analysis of the death of the Age of Wonders, Militia thinks the past glories of the Empire are irrelevant at best and a hindrance at worst, and... She thinks near all tyrants before her were fools, as if she were the only clever woman to ever hold the tower. I mean, like, I know what I said, but I mean... Okay, being a fool does not mean you're not effective, and buffoonery can be a very important kind of evil. Let's be real. Right. She thinks near all tyrants before her were fools. You know what, Ubla? I do too! (laughs) I know we haven't seen all of the tyrants in action, and we don't really have a ton of information on most of them, 
But... Made the rest of them return. Yeah. But you gotta understand, Militia's a nobody from nowhere who doesn't even get it. She doesn't even get it, okay? It's not even... She just doesn't get it, okay? Now, Aquia, Aquia gets it. She'd been born to the great ruling line of Great and Ancient Wolof, the only imperial city never to be occupied by foreigners after the declaration. And as a child, she'd played in the temple mazes where her ancestors had sacrificed greenskins to the gods, okay? And all that aside, I just want to note that I don't know anything about the temple mazes. Don't get me wrong, but I get praise and I get Wolof. And they let her play there as a child? That's survival of the fittest, huh? Yeah, that's a little concerning. And the only concerning thing in that sentence, I think. Yeah, let's look at the next line. Where her ancestors had sacrificed green skins to the gods. Now, we know that Price is big on sacrificing people, or at least has been. That's fine. They're the evil empire. They're allowed some human sacrifice. But there's something... I I say something as though we don't know what it is. It's very uncomfortable that there's a racial specificity here. That it's not her ancestors had sacrificed people or her ancestors had sacrificed enemies or slaves or but the fact that it's specifically greenskins. Not a fan of that. It's it's definitely uncomfortable. It's also interesting that hmm it's an interesting point when we hold it up next to the previous villainous interlude that focused on Eris when she we used her as the I don't know counterpoint to Billy's racism with her sort of pragmatic people are people and everybody's beneath me regardless of what their (laughs) ancestry is Uh, and I understand that here we're talking about her ancestors but the just sort of yep this is where green chickens were sacrificed it's just an uncomfortable thing Generally speaking, but you don't understand. Uh, every everybody's pretty chill. Like it doesn't matter what you are, as long as you're effective, you can be an orc. I don't care. That's the way it is, and it's not worth trying to change. Is the view she pretty much expressed back then. Now we go to the view in this chapter, which is the past is sacred and cannot be changed. And her ancestors sacrificed greenskins, and you know she changed from that. Okay, she's different now. Whatever. She is 13 years old and consistent. You know, she's at the time of this chapter, she's not 13, right? You keep, you keep referring her, to her. This is her analysis at the age of 13. Mm, yeah, okay, that's fair. Also, advice to all listeners, don't be 13. It is not a choice anyone looks back, with, looks back at with anything but cringing regret. Except me. I was so cool back then. You would not believe. You're right. I would not believe. So then... Aquia goes on a very nice little villainous megalomaniacal internal monologue, mm-hmm. starting off with more or less, we are the last of our breed militia, the last great villains of Colernia, perhaps in all of creation. Okay, slow your roll. You're full of beans and so is your old man, as they say, because Colernia uh, is nothing. Moving on. The drow of the Everdark had collapsed into bickering tribes, unworthy of the ruins they haunted. And we meet them later, and let's be real, tribes is not the right word. They're they're just hangers-on and monsters. They're great. But tribes? Hey, look, it's Rumena. Oh, that's one of my favorite tribes. (laughs) It is. People don't typically have favorite tribes 
from the outside. That's kind of the not how tribes. Your point stands. Because if I were to say to you, hey, what's your favorite tribe? That's bad. Probably Rumena. <laughs> okay, that's, that's less bad. No, that's very bad. Rumena is monstrous, and it's not something you, you should... Ah. Also, I love it. The Chain of Hunger, she continues, was nothing more than a horde of starving rats, as incapable of villainy as any other animal. Again, I don't think she's been there. I because mean... Okay, go ahead. The Chain of Hunger is little more than a horde of starving rats, but that little is a lot. I think... I think her opinion there is probably a pretty fair one for somebody who hasn't had to deal with. Like I would, I would wager most Proserans probably have that same opinion, roughly. I bet you the Lycanese afford them a little more respect, but not in like a actually. I want to say culturally sensitive, and they do not deserve that. And I don't quite mean that, but in a understanding anthropological way, but rather. They afford them some kind of the same respect afforded the tide that eats away at the shore or the fire that burns through the forest. Well, sure. But They're not just animals. They're the enemy. Yeah, but the tide that destroys the shoreline or the fire that destroys the forest, those are also incapable of villainy. They're Apparently, you've never seen Pirates of the Caribbean 2, Dead Man's Chest, or Pirates of the Caribbean 3, At World's End, because let me tell you something about the sea. She's awesome. Okay. <laughs> Regardless, I think that they understand the danger of the chain of hunger without saying that they are conscious villains, I guess, which is more... I think that's all that Uba's saying here. Okay, fair. But I think opinions would change if a promising young horned lord with a suitcase full of dreams and a heart full of song came to the big city hoping to make it in... I don't think this actually viable i retract my statement okay and then she writes off the dead king which is fair since he really doesn't do anything for the rest of the series he's Mm -hmm. just up there but she notes that you know he's done nothing and lately he's done less than nothing because the fact that the lycanese had even been able to participate in the prosperous civil war was a sign of how far the lich had fallen in the olden days they would not have dared to strip even a single man from their walls you know, now they don't even need the walls, I hope. Because, uh, uh... Let's just say that the dead king himself is going to be stripping some men from their walls. Because in the later books, the dead king becomes the main antagonist, and he sends uh, a horde of undead I, down. I was wondering where you were going with that. I follow now. Yeah, yeah. So everyone has to, like, band together, and Prosser yeah. takes the brunt of it, but everyone's sure. dying. It's It's real bad. They kill him at the end, though, don't worry. Oh, sick. And it sticks? I know he's a lich, so... No, that's Greek mythology. There's no river sticks here. (laughs) Moving on. Uh, Speaking of Greek things, Heliki, it says Eris, which had broken the Principate's back under the Unconquered, now flinched in the face of Prosser's displeasure. And uh, give it a minute. They're going to be back. Better than ever. It's our boy. This little bit is also weird. So the, the sentence before that is... Stygia, uh, Stygia and Bellerophon had been muzzled by the other cities in the league, reduced to pretty, too pretty, reduced to petty border disputes. Wasn't Eris like five minutes ago talking about how poorly handled foreign policy had been under militia, 
isn't militia partially to blame for what's going on with the five, with the free cities? It, it, good foreign policy would have just marched down there and taken over them. Easy. Oh, simply conquer the free cities. My bad. I mean, I don't mean to be critical, but I think that's where Alexander really went wrong. If he had just conquered everything instead of almost everything, maybe the empire wouldn't have fallen apart. He could have been Alexander the Excellent instead of Alexander the Great. <laughs> that's actually very good. Thanks. <laughs> uh, but... After this last little bit here, uh, we come to the present time where Eris is existing in physical space instead of just mental. And and she's not 13 anymore. She's, she's like not, an adult age. Yeah, it's important to note that because of what's about to follow, which is that Eris is simply too sexy to wear armor, apparently. Uh, she talks about the, you know, she's wearing some kinds of armor and, you know, some clothing and all of these, but it's difficult for her to wear armor because her curves were not easy to fit under such apparel, even after binding. Eris is just too curvy to put on protective armor. <laughs> and it's even this is even better when you remember that this is from her perspective. This is an Eris perspective chapter, and she's just she takes a moment to remind the audience, yeah, I'm just too curvy for armor. What can I say? It's a curse. That poor woman and her ample, ample bosom. <laughs> Yeah. So, Aquia is sexy beyond all human comprehension. Right. Nothing but sensuous curve and just so much going on. Can't even get armor on it. Mm -hmm. And she's here in Callow, which frankly probably makes her even shinier in comparison, because no offense but you. Yeah. You know, we were talking just a minute ago about the previous Eris chapter and how, you know fine she was when it came to treating orcs as other people for instance but here we get just a real rough line from her where she says that Callowans were a people of mud which first of all okay not a great start not inaccurate though mm -hmm. and she says they're fit only for toiling fields so again not a great start we're just saying Callowans are bad just they're they're poor and can't do things but then she makes it worse with sort of a weird compliment by saying uh, they're fit for toiling fields, save for a few superior breeds like the Jorah. I don't like that word. Why no. did you do that? No. Breeds? You don't you don't say that about you can't do that about people. You can't you can't do breeds at a people. That's not good. That's really bad. No. Not in her defense, but I guess in her favor is the fact that she named the orcs to be the civilized and valuable branch uh -huh. notice i didn't say the other br word there because i just couldn't uh, right. but you know at least it's unique racism and i guess if you're going to be racist be unique about it is that is that the point here what i'm saying is that reverse racism isn't real grow up okay she's gross about people briefly but don't worry she then gets judgy about individuals which you know as a catty gay man, I love. Sure. She's looking at her inner circle and she's like, oh, Barika, I guess you can sit with us <laughs> if, you know, we're not being mean to you today for our own amusement. Because she's the least valuable in and of herself. Let's see. She's not as powerful a mage as Fadila, not a skilled warrior and leader of men like Gassan. Gassan? Gassan? 
Gassan, not a skilled warrior and leader of men like Gassan, and not an inherently valuable piece like Chider. Pause. Chider. Chider. We kept Chider. I'm glad. I hope. I, I I hope she's doing better. What's the? Oh yeah. Okay. You were you were looking for the pronunciation of Gassan. And one of the options you went for left me thinking no one leads men like Gassan, and kind of spiraled from there. But yes. Chider's been kept around. That's great. Chider's cute. A little murdery, but eh, that's goblins for you. Also, let's just finish a section because Barigas had it too good for too long. Uh, she wasn't even particularly clever, though she was by no means stupid. She is my most loyal, though. I will give her that. Anyway, I really love the Regina George energy here. Yep. Mean Girls 2004. Dang it, that's too long ago. 19 years. And now they're coming out with the movie version of the musical. Yeah. And will it be pretty mediocre? Probably. Will I watch it? Probably. Will I enjoy it? Probably. Sounds like a good time. You know what isn't a good time? Uh, I, fill me in. So, Eris has a host. Some of them are Prosserin, uh, exiled for banditry and hostage-taking. And they're great. She's enjoying them. They're doing so well. But I remind you, she has an elite unit from Stygia. And she tells us that the Stygian slaves had proved to be less resourceful than the Prosperans, but then she not expected initiative of them when buying their leash. Just want to note here, slavery is gross, slavers are gross, this is gross, you know stop, I hate you, I hate you, I'm glad Catherine kills you. Just, I mean, remember though, they're not actually, she freed them, right? That's what we're told, for sure, definitely freed, not slaves anymore. We'll get into that next time. Oh boy! I got to guess next time. As long as someone frees them, they will become my favorite character. You are in for a treat, buddy. Oh, does someone free them? Great. Must be a really good, upstanding person that we have no notes on. It is a good person, and they do stand up. Nice. Hey, you know how sometimes when you're reading practical guide ee just like sprinkles in some little setting details and you want a whole spin-off story about those because they're they just sound so cool yes but i can't imagine that's relevant right now while we're talking about ee's writing what the greatest of the tyrants had wrought was not easily undone if it were the skybreaker and his if it were the skybreaker and his wife would not still be bound at the summit of cloudreach peak one cursed with endless hunger and the other with endless healing. Huh? What's going on here? Also, uh, this is heard in the Titanomachy, which means uh, Skybreaker and his wife are potentially, you know, big fellas. Uh, I would like more information, please and thank you. I actually do have a little more explanation. Oh, di- nice. The Skybreakers are an order of radiance from Brando Sando's The Stormlight Archives. Oh, I thought this would be Skybreaker, like the character from The Fall of Doc Future. My apologies. Unless it's a Skybreaker, I hardly know her. Very nice. Hey, I wonder how many uh, people The Fall of Doc Future will land with. Is that a? That's probably not a well-known thing, right? I don't know it. Hey, but if you do, audience member, yeah. please avoid writing in, because <laughs> I do not want my co-host to ever feel vindicated about anything. I really don't know how widespread the knowledge of that is. So, you know, perhaps none of you have heard of it. And, you know, that's fine. I'll just rest in knowing more literature than y'all. That's fine. So all of that is sort of mentioned as a, an aside to demonstrate how 
inescapably bound demons have been, which is good because apparently they're kind of hard to get rid of. There is a theory. Apparently it's a theory that demons were born of evil, and so evil cannot destroy them. Do we know whether this is the case? Does evil destroy a demon at some point in the story? I don't recall. Uh, I mean, evil folks kind of get nasty with demons, but I don't know about destroy. We will have to keep an eye out on this one. On people getting nasty with demons? All right. I mean, you should see my Google search history. No, thank you. And speaking of people whose search history I wouldn't want to see... hell, a third voice mused. Corruption, isn't it? Oh, the bard's here. She's just gotta step in and chat because, honestly, I don't see her accomplishing any aims here. She's just popping in to say hi. Yeah, definitely just popping in to say hi. Eris isn't super pleased with that, uh, but she does provide us a little bit of information about bards here, you know, we in a way that's pretty cool. Like, there's a fun little theory about bards provided here uh which is that the there's a running theory that you shouldn't let bards talk because they practice a softer form of speaking one that influences rather than commands and i gotta say that's pretty cool it makes what bards do have some story weight rather than just they're good at talking and i like that i think i think it's a nice little detail to sprinkle in here as this horrific abomination shows up to be the scariest thing in a scene with a demon. So, so far, the bard has successfully presented herself as, you know, a bard, which is inherently, if not the butt of the joke every time, at the very least, the setup for it. And knowing who she is and what she is, it's only better, because as Aquia has her threatened, she says, it won't do you any good. Aquia asks, why would that be? And the dark-haired stranger wiggled her eyebrows. Because I'm invincible, of course, she informed them cheerfully. If you ever play a tabletop role-playing game with me, you will learn that my favorite thing to do is to just say true things as though they are a joke. And the bard does it, and she, I love her. She does it so And I identify well. with her. Yeah. And Eris is not pleased with that. Uh, she, when it's said, she has to resist the urge to glance at the standard with worry, because... Saying something like that is basically sending a written invitation to the gods to make the opposite point. Uh, she then says, if a villain had dared to say that, the roof would have collapsed on their heads. And I gotta say, depends on the villain. There are certain villains that thrive on that kind of overconfidence and wield it to make their story more potent. Name one. Uh, I have a feeling that if at his, at his height, Kairos had said that, he would have been just fine. And if at her height Catherine had, she'd still be very short. That's true. Yeah, Catherine could not get away with saying that, I don't think. Most villains cannot. I, I agree with Eris there, but I think Iros probably could have. And I bet, honestly, I bet Triumphant could have at her height as well. But enough about villainous shortcomings and overcomings. Also, okay. Catherine is short. What about heroic shortcomings? Yeah, it, it's... <sighs> So the bard is poking some fun at Eris here. She says that of the three main characters, I mean, there's probably a better way of phrasing it, but let's be honest, what's actually happening here. 
uh, between Catherine, Billy, and uh, Eris. She thinks that Eris was supposed to be the mastermind of this story uh, because Catherine thinks with her fists, and according to the Bard, Willie thinks three days after the battle is over. And you know, don't I don't want to get in the way of some fun bardic maybe hyperbole here, but isn't saying three days after the battle's over a little generous to William? Like that he think he thinks about things that soon? Wasn't it only a few weeks ago that he was thinking about being elbow deep in the meat? And that's been yep. a while. That has been, it has been a while since he was elbow deep in the meat. If I ever go to a barbecue place. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, context of this story aside, it would be pretty cool to be elbow deep in the meat, you know? But uh, Aerith gets upset because the bard, but she gets to be doubly upset because, according to her, even Foundling, irreverent gutter snipe that she was, had learned to watch her mouth around her. Huh? Which is news to me, but good for you. Yeah. And the bard, continuing to poke at Aquia, lets her know that being rich and pretty isn't actually a magical power, sweetheart. Which, not to take two statements in a row and contest them, but um, Militia, though, being rich and pretty is her magical power. <laughs> and it's a darn good one. I mean, sort of. There's, there's maybe a bit more to Militia than that, but... I can't see past the rich and pretty. Fair. Also, I can't see because there's a dagger in each of my eyes right now. I don't know where they came from. But this is clearly, uh, you know, the bard is trying to, <laughs> uh, she's she's trying to egg Eris on. She's egging her. She's getting a rise. It's a, because of the hell egg. So she's she goes on after the. Isn't rise Williams' power? <laughs> Okay. Uh, she says, you're one of those old-school Precy villain with a closet full of self-importance and megalomania. At least that finally explains why your schemes are so terrible. They just... She's insulting her, and Eris guesses that it's because the bard is trying to get her plans out of her to, you know, get angry and rant. And the bard, haha, admits that that's what's going on, of course, you caught me. Uh, the Bard's definitely playing another game here and doing it apparently either really well or just Eris is really struggling to pick up on it, possibly because of who the Bard is and what she can do, and also possibly because Eris actually is an old-school pricey villain with a closet full of self-importance and megalomania. I think they have big closets, though. Uh, I imagine so. So you can fit a lot of megalomania there. I mean, yeah, that checks out. So. You know who died recently? Um, I, I know some people that have died. Who are you thinking of? Johnny Hardwick. Oh, uh, yeah. I can see why that would come up. The reason it comes up is because the bard, when things start looking dark for her, uses a powerful artifact called the Sands of Deception. And she shoves her free hand in her pocket, takes a handful of sand, and throws it. Oh, she pocket sands him. She pocket sands him. This is a reference to the American television show, King of the Hill, where utterly ungrounded character Dale Gribble pulls out a handful of sand from his pocket and throws it at someone yelling pocket sand, which is an effective strategy that I do not recommend because it qualifies as assault. And should. Because sand. Man. Which is a novel by Neil Gaiman? Gaiman? I think Gaiman. Yeah, the, the pocket sand is in response to Barika starting to do some magic and making our second 
Beauty of the Beast reference this episode by saying, you'll be our guest. Either way, uh, naturally the bard escapes here. Uh, the moment that she is out of the line of sight of the of Eris and her companion. And Eris assumes that there have to be some kind of limitations there. Because, according to her, names were never this generous without taking a toll of some sort or adding restrictive clauses to how the power could be used. And while the Bard's get-out-of-trouble-free card does have something of a limitation that Black exploits at one point, the taking a toll of some sort, hoo boy. Yup, that uh, pretty, pretty hefty one, I would say. The toll being that we have to deal with her now? Yes, the toll is extracted from us, the audience. So Barika takes a moment and then says, this is just regular sand. Wait, is that the deception? Aquia had never more keenly understood the age-old Precy tradition of summarily executing one's subordinates. Iconic. Love it. This is a perfect dynamic, and honestly, I hope they end up together in the end. I mean, immense self-control on her part to not execute her. Like, she could have who was going to stop her i know the answer to that one. Oh, the end of the episode uh, it does stop her because that is all the time we have for today is it okay that we didn't actually mention her scuffing the oh y- yeah uh she steps forward and kicks some chalk and so the demon can come free join us next week on podcast guys talking erratic red as we discuss redress and retribution wade in their blood Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata as a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Gilded Cage, Upbeat, Pop, Instrumental, Original, Dance by Melody Aries Griffiths. Bard Stuff was Gabriel Acoustic Folk Guitar by Kazoom. Outer music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. Go support other artists, too. I don't care. Art deserves to be paid for. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions? Do you have comments? Do you have contributions? Do you have overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art and access at least one patron-exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining. Unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero Grey, our patron and liege always claim it never the named, our patron guardian of the Fae Knight, our patron and mentor the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend Aaron, our patron and inspiration the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, uh, whatever the opposite of a villainous interlude is. Before I forget, 
and I do mean before, I definitely have not forgotten yet. Uh, I mentioned a couple times that there is something specifically related to the heiress that I wanted to talk about a bit, so I'm going to do that now. In my first read of this story, Eris read to me like a villain in the classical mold, the kind of thing, the kind of person who exists in the schema that Cat and Black are fighting against, but a very, very capable and aware villain. He fits into the expectation, but is more aware of the limitations of that mold than most other villains would be. But I'm beginning to wonder if I misread that a bit on an initial read, and on this read-through I want to pay extra attention to that, because a couple of times in this chapter and in other Ubwa perspective chapters, she comes across as, I don't know, maybe a bit delusional in a pretty dark way. Uh, she underestimates the calamities in major ways. She uh, has the whole uh, argument about Osher and how they're good and praise is evil and that is enough for them to be enemies. You have the line about Trace being weak despite having just conquered Kalo. And it's a number of things like that that are showing up that makes me want to pay attention in her perspective chapters going forward and see if she isn't a villain in the classical mold but also a pretty delusional one about her own place in it and how everybody else fits into that paradigm. She's obviously talented and capable and powerful and all of that. Like, there's, there's no question there. But is her worldview skewed in a way that is limiting what she can do? I, I don't know. I'm seeing pieces of that here and am looking forward to seeing if there's more evidence for that and I, it's simply something that I didn't notice on the first read or if there is no more evidence and maybe this chapter is just a rough one for her because she's dealing with the bard and the calamities. I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll see where that goes. I just wanted to to get that get these thoughts out there early so we can call back to them and laugh about how off I was or you know, how much of a Nostradamus I turned out to be.